reality that there are the reality is that cops just like any other line of work are is filled with sinful people and there are people in there who do harm and who practice and participate in actions that that are harmful to other people and some people have a good reason to be upset they've been brutalized they've been mistreated they've had their rights violated but as a time it, with the short period of time I have with y'all tonight and I will stay on script because I know I love to talk and y'all will be here for a while but I, I trust that the information that I'm going to give you will be a blessing to you and I don't typically do this but I want to share one verse with you tonight if you have your Bibles I don't have it on PowerPoint I just thought about it while I was sitting here. Uh, if you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. There's a lot of talk out there nowadays that policing is racist, uh, policing is this, policing is that. But I want you to know that policing is a God-honoring position when done right rightly and that there is a purpose for it. Let's go to Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to do good, to do good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. And you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenging an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So I think that I think that text of scripture makes it pretty plain that there's a purpose for law enforcement. Obviously, not to abuse, obviously. But there is a God-ordained purpose. But let me get rolling here in my presentation here. I'm not sure if my mouse will work. So I may have to get the brothers up top to give me some, give me a little assistance here. Am I seeing anything going on? I'm seeing nothing here. <laughs> All right. But. Let me do my intro while they're doing the thing up there. I first would love to thank everyone here at Metro Praise International for even inviting me here to give me the opportunity to speak. I know there are a lot of places that don't even want to touch this topic. It is a controversial one. It has a tendency to divide, but it needs to be addressed. And I think there's no place better than for it to be addressed, in, first and foremost, than with the church, than in the church. But I think we'd all agree that we're living in some pretty unprecedented times, would we not? Uh, I don't take the weight of this topic lightly at all. Like I said, once again, I understand that it's both emotional and controversial. But during my time with you, I'll be speaking with you on the issue of police brutality and seeking to separate the facts from the fiction while offering some advice as to how the general public, and, but most importantly, how the church should respond to these issues. 
a little bit about me. It's on the screen here. I probably should move over because my big old head is all up in the way. <laughs> which way should I go? Which, which? Yeah, I'm good? All right. Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, going back a little bit, uh, I left the Army in 1992. I did four years, combat medic, and I started working. If, I don't know who all is familiar with Westville Correctional Center. Anyone know Westville? Westville, Indiana, like about 60 miles, not too far from here. I started working there in 92 and worked there until about 1995, as you can see on the screen, as a corrections officer. And if anyone's familiar with Westville, again, it's about an hour from here, 40 miles outside of Gary, Indiana. And usually when I give this presentation, I'm not in Chicago. So, but we all know the unfortunate state of, of circumstances here in Chicago with the violence that has hit this place. I, don't li I live in Vegas and I follow the activities here in Chicago on a regular basis, on a weekly basis. I, I try to stay a gist of what's going on because you see the unfortunate fruit of some bad policies taking place on a, on a consistent basis. I would say that um, as challenging as the job was when I worked at Westville uh, as a corrections officer, I would say that's where I learned the skills that helped me more than any other skills throughout the course of my career. Skills that would, that I wish more officers would seek to develop further. And those are the skills of communication and, the, and persuasion, being able to persuade people. Excuse me, y'all. Y'all just looking at me like, what is he talking about? But your old heads, y'all know, right? <laughs> but some of y'all looking at me like, you don't know what I'm talking about, because I'm talking about Janet Jackson, you know. Yeah, I, I heard about her, because, you know, I'm saved. I don't know nothing about that kind of music. But I, I heard about, I saw an old YouTube video, you know. <laughs> anyway, let me get going then. All right. But in a prison or jail environment, you don't have a gun. You might be lucky if you have a taser or pepper spray. And oftentimes it's you, a set of handcuffs, and a radio, and your ability to communicate or lack thereof, which is unfortunately, which unfortunately happens more times than, than you know, I'd, I'd be, uh, than I'm proud to admit with some of the other coworkers I had. And even myself at times, if I'm completely honest. Think about it for a moment. You as an officer, you're assigned to a housing unit and you're dealing with someone who is looking at 10, 20, 50 years and your job is to maintain order on that housing unit and to get somebody to make their bed up every day who's looking at 50 years. I mean, honestly, like what, what would motivate you to say, yeah, I'm going to make my bed when I'm looking at pretty much possibly dying here? So you have to develop the ability to be able to communicate. And like I said, it was a blessing to me to have that experience. In 1996, after moving to Las Vegas and doing casino security, I worked, I worked there for a year. I hired on with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. 
in 06, I decided that for a change and I attended the Las Vegas Metropolitan Ac uh, Police Academy to become a police officer. Initially, for the first 10 years, I worked as a CO at the county jail. And I retired ultimately in 2014. Over those years, I was blessed to work in a variety of different capacities, as you see on the screen. I worked in the prison emergency squad. I worked in gang intelligence. I worked as a defensive tactics instructor, firearms instructor, active shooter response instructor, terrorism liaison officer, and a crisis intervention team officer. And let me tell you a little bit about the crisis intervention team. You know, oftentimes when you hear people talking about, man, I wish the police knew more about how to deal with the mentally ill. Actually, police get a lot of training in dealing with the mentally ill, probably more than almost, other than a field that deals specifically with mental health. They probably get more training than almost any other field. And so as a crisis intervention team officer, you are tasked with a specific set of skills to be able to deal, hopefully, deal uh, positively with someone who's in that situation. Can I get the next slide? All right, this is an example of wh where I worked. This article came out in 95, 95, 94. Living Hell at Westville, South Bend Tribune wrote that article. There was a former inmate who spent about two years in prison and he gave his story of what life was like in prison. He talked about the dangerous conditions there. Sadly, he was spot on. Violent gangs, sexual assaults, extortions, inept or corrupt officers. It, it was a terrible environment to work, let alone be housed there, that actually have to live there. But thankfully, this article, once this article came out, it exposed a lot of the corruption and the evils that were going on there, and it resulted in a massive amount of changes. Right now, if I'm not mistaken, Westville is a medium security prison. At that time I worked there, it was a maximum security prison. Next slide, please. That is my Corrections Officer Academy. You see the arrow? Y'all already see my big head. You can see me right back there. That's my academy. We graduated in 1997. Next. This is me getting the uh, graduating from my police academy. Police Academy in 2007, I graduated with honors. That's a little blue ribbon on there. <laughs> Trust me, it was not easy. It was like 26 weeks. Man, that was, a, that was probably the longest six months plus of my life. And, uh, but it was, it was all worth it in the back. I got all the faces blacked out, so it looks like I got a bunch of covert ops operatives working with me back there. But I just did it because they're officers. Some of them work undercover. I just want to make sure that they didn't get put out there like that. This is me. I was uh, voted to give the class speech at that academy. Next. And uh, throughout the course of my career, there were, uh, while there were plenty of ups and downs, I would say that I loved what I did. Next slide. And in my honest opinion, when done rightly, there are few jobs more honorable than that of a law enforcement officer. Protecting and serving can be extremely challenging, often thankless, yet very rewarding. Next slide. And believe it or not, I actually did more than just take photos. I actually fought crime here and there. 
but hey. Next slide, please. Anyone who's familiar with me, this is my YouTube channel and my name of my organization, Code Red Conversations. Do me a favor, make sure you like and subscribe, as they always say. But check it out, though. Seriously, I address a lot of the more pressing and mainstream police interactions that make the make headlines, and I give I give pretty detailed breakdowns. So if you ever see a police shooting or a police use of force or just any police-related topic, especially if it's controversial, check out Code Red Conversations. I'll probably address it at one time or another. I, and I've had plenty of people come up to me and tell me that they thought one thing about police and they, or about this uh, a particular police use of force, but after listen to, listening to my breakdown, they had a different perspective. So I think it would definitely, definitely be helpful to you. But in regard to that, I say that uh, I have no problem calling out the problems that have truly plagued law enforcement from its inception, even now, when necessary even when it puts me at odds with other officers, because there are many days where I, some of the discussions I have, some of my former coworkers, they get upset at me because I don't always just take the side of a cop, just because he's a cop and I was one. I try to look at, first of all, as a Christian man, my, my desire is to honor God first and foremost, and honor him with standing for truth, the one who is the actual author of truth. And let me give you an example. Uh, one of the most, hold on right there. If you can go back one real quick. Thank you. One time, throughout, probably the most, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The most impactful moment throughout the course of my career. While I was going through field training during my first academy, which is basically on the job training for a new officer, one of my training officers instigated a conflict with the inmate just because the guy, he said the guy looked at him funny. Why? I have no idea. I think he honestly wanted to test me to see if I knew what I was doing, if I was prepared for the conflicts that would come, that would naturally come as an officer. But I remember him going into the cell just because he didn't like the way the guy looked at him, him and another officer, and he brought me along with him, and they beat this man bloody for no clear reason. And to add a little more to it, to add a little more context to it, this whole story, here I was, the primary breadwinner of my family. Now we're going back to the mid, we're going back to the late, uh, mid 90s, 90s, this was 97. I had just left a job that paid me $7 an hour, $7 an hour. I know some of y'all like, what? in the world is that? Like, what can you do with that? But I, I was working security in Las Vegas, making seven bucks an hour, and Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department would more than double my pay instantly. So here I stood ha with a moral dilemma. I was in a position where I was, it would radically change the life of my family. At the time, my wife and I, we, we had a brand newborn baby. She was only seven months old, if I'm not mistaken, by the time I graduated the academy. And it, this job, I knew as time went on that this job could totally change our lives. With, if you're talking about promotions and longevity on the job, 
I can make seven times that as far as like, I could make like, there's some people making 50 bucks an hour plus as police officers in Las Vegas. And then here I was forced with, with making the decision as to what to do. And the, uh, the reality was, I, for a second there, I didn't know what to do. But I knew that I couldn't lay my head down at night knowing that I just stood by while I saw a fellow image bearer of God get beat down for no reason. So I did confront the officer. I told him that I wasn't a rookie at corrections. I had just done three years working as in, the, in the prison, not locked up. Three years working the prison. And so I knew that you, there are ways to communicate with people where you don't have to go that path. You don't have to go that route. Unfortunately, it was my word as a rookie, I mean, couple of months on the job, I mean, not even on the job, couple of months in training, one day on the job against a couple of seasoned officers. I think combined, they might have had about 17 years. So you're talking about, it was my word against theirs, there was no video evidence whatsoever. And the only thing I got from that was gaining the reputation of being called a snitch. And I'm being real with y'all. I remember that night going home and breaking down in front of my wife. I literally bawled. I literally cried. Because I, I understood that this job could offer so much opportunity for us. But if, the, if they wanted me to act like that, I knew I couldn't do the job. And I would have had to leave. Thankfully, with that incident behind me, I ultimately built my own reputation. I was not the perfect officer. There were times where I lost my cool, no question about it. But I like to think that those who truly knew me and knew how I worked, whether officer, citizen, inmate, or suspect, knew that regardless of our interaction, respect was always my primary goal. I say all this to say to you that yes, police brutality is real, as I started off this presentation saying. I'm not one of those who tries to claim that it isn't. I believe it would be an insult and a tremendous injustice to those who have suffered at the hands of those who have pledged to, quote unquote, protect and serve. In the areas of bigotry growing up in my life, in the 70s and 80s, I can go on and on about how me and my family were treated by those, uh, some of the white folks in our community. I mean, it just was what it was, especially at that time. Especially considering the fact that we were the only black folks in that, in that neighborhood. We were often reminded on an almost daily basis that we were not welcome. From someone yelling the N-word at us at random when I was seven years old, just walking down the street, or being cussed out by a police officer and told you were in the wrong blanking neighborhood and you need to go back to where you came, from where, uh, where you came. At school, there was more diversity. How did that work out for us? Not necessarily well. For those of you who think that bigotry or racism is only on one side and only white folks are capable of being racist, especially if you give the traditional definition, I would, beg, I would strongly beg to differ. You see, oftentimes I was told that I, was, I spoke too white 
for some of the other black kids. And even times I was told that my skin was too dark by other black kids. And that teasing sometimes would often escalate into threats of violence. Seriously, I mean, I'm not, I'm not making any of this up. This is legit. Threatened to get beat up just because you speak a little differently or your skin might be a little too dark. I mean, we, we can, I can go on and on about how there's that skin tone racism in the black. I see my light-skinned sister over there nodding her head. She, kn <laughs> she knows. It's a reality. It's a reality. I share all this to say to you or to show to you that my experiences are pretty broad, and I've seen bad and evil come from all sides of the equation. Police, citizens, black, white, brown. I like to think that my life experience has put me in a unique position to openly discuss these issues. I also think I'd be giving, doing a huge disservice if I didn't recognize the massive changes that have occurred in my lifetime amongst the various ethnic groups within our society. Despite what you've been hearing on some of our main news stations and from some of our celebrities and political pundits, our culture has changed. And I would argue for the better when it comes to race relations in this country. I strongly would argue that. Regarding our primary topic, the police. Next slide, please. I would argue that for every occasion of police deception, misconduct, or carelessness, there are many others. Next slide. And you can go through the next couple of slides here. There are many others who are seeking to perform their jobs in a just manner. Voices and actions that are rarely seen, you can pause right there. Voices and actions that are rarely seen or heard one reason being that good news simply doesn't sell. In our desire to better understand the issues related to a police use of force, we must ask some tough questions. Next slide. Next one. What is the reality of police shootings, police brutality in our present day? Two. Are cops out of control in regard to the killings of black men? Three, are things as bad as they were 30, 40, 50 years ago? Next slide. What does the data show us? What do the actual stats, numbers, and figures say about the police, and how does it compare to mainstream media sources, news, celebrities, so on and so forth, TV shows, these are just some of the things we must seek to better understand before coming to any conclusions one way or another. But before we go to the next topic, before we continue on, I should say, please allow me to take you on a trip, a little bit of a trip through history or a trip through time. Like that little effect right there, going back in time. Next. Okay, real quick. For the, uh, let's just get the young folks to uh, answer this one here. What's this? Okay, very good. Give yourself a round of applause, y'all. Very good. Obviously, this is a promotional poster for the movie Jaws. 
What year, okay, for my old school folks in here, what year did that come out? I heard 76. 75. 75. Very good. Who says 76 in the back? Good job. You get a little piece of candy later on. Unless you're a diabetic, then I'll give you some cheese or something like that. But once again, this is a promotional poster for the 1975 summer film Jaws. Today, we are used to the big blockbuster hit movie. But believe it or not, Jaws started the trend. 1975. Before, before Jaws, the general consensus was that people would rather spend their, their summer vacations going to the beach or doing other things and not spending hours in a movie theater. Jaws changed the whole game, become, quickly becoming the highest grossing film in North American history. Yet with all that, with all that success, you're probably wondering, why has he got this picture of Jaws up here? He's talking about police. Keep that in mind. I'm, I'm going to tie it in. And I'm going to see some heads nodding as I give the presentation. Y'all going to feel me where I'm going with this. Yeah, with all the success it has, it holds a very unusual distinction. So keep that in the back of your head. Next slide, please. Next one. Can you turn that up? Guess not. <laughs> okay, let's as we move on. At approximately, this is January, July 27, 1996. At approximately 1 a.m., a nail-ridden pipe bomb inside of a green backpack was discovered by security guard Richard Jewell. After alerting authorities, and while efforts were being made to clear the area, the bomb went off, killing Alice Hawthorne and injuring over 100 people. During the initial investigation, Richard Jewell was credited with discovering the bomb and potentially saving countless other lives. But that was far from the end of the story. How are we doing on volume, guys? Because the next couple of slides, uh, I'm, I'm hoping they can hear me. I'm hoping they can hear it. In March of 2006, there's nothing, there's no audio here. You're good on this one. Next, next few, I believe. In March of 2006, during an off-campus party, members of the Duke lacrosse team invited some quote-unquote dancers over for entertainment. An argument ensued, resulting in the women leaving separately. One of the dancers, Crystal Mangum, that's her photo right there, later stated that she had been dragged into the bathroom and was beaten and raped repeatedly by members of the team for 30 minutes. What do these events have in common? L let's do a review. Next slide, guys. Are we Next. Hit it one more time. I'm not sure if I can click to the next slide like this or not. 
That wasn't me. All right, I'm going to pause this right here because uh, y'all won't be able to hear that. This video, what he basically states here, that the distinction, going back to the, the distinction, I was really hoping y'all could hear that. The distinction that I was pointing out when it comes to the movie Jaws was that it resulted in people being afraid to go to the water. They were afraid. Why is that? Someone give me a get shout out. Absolutely. They saw a shark attack. And then what happened on the news? the news shows started reporting shark attacks more and more. So more people become afraid to go to the water. But what's the actual reality of shark attacks? I'm glad you asked. We're about to get into that. Many people became fearful of going to the waters, concerned over a shark attack, while in all actuality, a shark attack is an extremely rare event. According to the University of Florida, which keeps a shark attack, which keeps a shark attack file, and uh, number three, a negative impression of sharks in general resulted due to the movie's massive success. So a massive amount of media attention was thrust upon the public and it fed their fears because the media focused on it a lot a rare event the media focused on repeatedly, making people think that it happens on a almost daily basis. According to a study in 2002, another thing, I, wanna, I love class participation. How many people were killed in 2002 from a shark attack? Anybody? 600? Five? Anyone else willing to guess? Three, worldwide documented cases. Three, worldwide. How many of y'all, honestly, if it wasn't for me kind of feeding, giving you a little heads up, how many of y'all would have thought that the number was three? You knew? Good man. But most people would probably think hundreds. I mean, you're talking about worldwide. You're talking about billions of people. But it's not even close to that number. In 2017, a 2017 article, next slide please. In 2017, uh, article stated that on average, sharks are responsible for 12 deaths a year. And you are more likely to die from an elephant attack or a vending machine falling on you. <laughs> That's real. <laughs> But on the flip side of that, 26 to 100 million sharks are killed every year for their fins and, uh, or out of fear, every year. 
do you think the response, the public response, equates to the amount of how dangerous they really are? Do you think that was that's like a balanced attack, or you think people are just motivated by Jaws, Deep Blue Sea? What, I mean, name any other shark movie, and they think so. They think it happens all all the time. Next slide. Next. One more. Regarding Richard Jewell, as I mentioned earlier, he was initially hailed as a hero. Investigators began looking at him somewhat suspiciously after the FBI received a call from a former president of a college where Jewell once worked as security. A deeper background search found other witnesses who claimed that he had employment problems and a quote-unquote obsession with law enforcement. Once that data was leaked to a local new Atlanta newspaper, the media frenzy soon followed. Next slide, another video. Is there any way we can turn that volume up and we can go back a little bit? Thank you. I appreciate y'all being gracious with me here. So how was everyone's day? When you're used to talking in a room with like 100 inmates, people looking at you crazy, I mean, you can talk in front of anybody. When stuff like this happens, like whatever. Once that data was leaked a local, to a, a local Atlanta newspaper, the media frenzy soon followed. Next clip, please. They just clowned the brother, didn't they? But there were many that had a hand in defaming Richard. Once that news source, those news publications got a hold of it, 
his life was forever transformed, and it, clearly not for the better. Mockery, ridicule, as you clearly heard, conspiracy theories and false assumptions were the means by which his character was almost irreversibly destroyed. Ultimately, Jewel was cleared of all wrong, wrongdoing, thankfully, after the investigation found no evidence to charge him. In the end, he sued CNN, NBC, the New York Post, ultimately settling out of court for undisclosed amounts. So he got paid, at least he got paid for his troubles, if nothing else. Next slide, please. For the second time, I'm going to get straight to the point on this one. If you are interested in further details on this case, the Duke Lacrosse team sexual assault case, I highly recommend the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary called Fantastic Lies. Fantastic Lies, ESPN 30 for 30, 30 for 30 documentary. Well done, breaks down the, the disgusting level of corruption that took place in trying to uh, prosecute these, these young men who were innocent. This case is a textbook example of the dangers that can come from making assumptions of guilt simply based on the skin color of the alleged offenders involved. Assumptions of guilt by the gang of, quote unquote, gang of 88 Duke University staff members, as well as local and national news agencies. An assumption of guilt, next slide please. An assumption of guilt by District Attorney Mike Nifong. He's the one that uh, attempted to try the case, or did try the case. Before any police report, DNA evidence, or any true investigation had ever began, he had already came out in the media saying that these guys were guilty. Next slide. Assumptions of guilt by many local leaders and classmates seeking quote-unquote justice calling for the teammates to be castrated, again, prior to any trial. All of this based solely on the allegations from one woman with a history of mental health problems and almost no corroborating evidence. The other dancer completely denied most of the claims that were made about the events at that party. In the end, the young men were acquitted some of the reasons, when it was determined that DA Mike Nifong, once again, seeking re-election, y'all hear me? Seeking re-election had intentionally doctored a police lineup using only photos of white Duke lacrosse team members. Basically, he was like guaranteeing that one of them would be convicted, which goes against any rules when it comes to how a uh, police lineup is supposed to be, supposed to be properly done. He also intentionally suppressed DNA evidence that would have, would have cleared the accused team members. This ultimately, ultimately led to Nifong being disbarred and facing other criminal charges. And I think he basically just ended up getting a little slap on the wrist. Next slide. What do these events have in common? It demonstrates, one, how the mainstream media how the mainstream media has the ability to influence the opinion of the masses. They can easily do that because most people look at them as being authority. Like, why would they lie? They, they couldn't have an agenda. Wrong. I mean, especially not now, not in 2021, not these days. They, they have an agenda. 
and they have the ear of the people. Two, people coming to conclusions about an incident without waiting for all the facts. Sometimes with zero information. How many times have you seen a little clip of something, whether it's a police incident, where the police are holding someone at gunpoint, everybody on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram are going nuts about it, and then come to find out later on that that guy was, had just robbed somebody or just attacked a police officer, just shot somebody. Context, y'all. If we're, as followers of Christ, I'm going off script a bit. As followers of Christ, the one who is, as I said earlier, is the actual author of truth, we, if following along with the culture, we ain't supposed to be doing all that. We're supposed to be standing out and taking controversial positions. I mean, we, we proclaim a man who died and rose again. But yet, time and time again, we, we don't, we're af afraid of taking these controversial opinions because we don't want to be unfriended on social media or have someone block us. We have to be willing to stand up on truth. For, first and foremost, gospel truth. But truth in any context whatsoever, we have to be willing to stand up for that. Are we starting to see the pattern? We're seeing how culture can dictate certain thoughts in our head, and sometimes we can get things mixed up. We're all guilty of that at one point or another. I've done it. I believe I've shown you how popular opinion can play a role in giving us false impressions. When it comes to policing, yes, and, and in the history in our country, when we, come to, when we talk about our racist past, we can't ignore that. And I hope no one walks away thinking that that's what I'm trying to do, just like we just brush aside history. It, we should take that into consideration. But at the same time, we need to be willing to examine all the facts, all the information. In the remaining time that I have with you, I will demonstrate that the prevailing narrative on the police has oftentimes, not always, but has oftentimes been grossly exaggerated and in the end can be destructive to all sides. Next slide. Let's lay out a few facts that uh, help us get a better perspective on things. How many cops would y'all say are in the United States? Anyone care to guess? I know I'm getting on y'all's nerves asking y'all that. Good guess, good guess. Two million, what else? 500,000, very good, good guesses. It's estimated between, because no one really knows, because you have a lot of small jurisdictions out there that have like little podunk towns that have a handful of cops. But there's estimated anywhere between 500,000 and 2 million police officers in the United States. According to the National Institute of Justice, next slide. These cops, next slide please. Thank you. According to the National Institute of Justice, these cops conduct anywhere from 100 million to 375 million contacts with the public every single year. Let me repeat that one more time. 100 million to over, to over 375 million contacts with the public every single year. And this is from the, like I said, National Institute of Justice. And what was the other source I had here? Uh, the Manhattan Institute. And there are various other studies that, that uh, examined. I got to post it up right here. Uh, there's a study done in 2009 from the, y'all can read it, Urban Small Town Comparison 
of citizens' demand for police services. And they, what they basically did to kind of sum it up, they used small towns and medium-sized towns. They didn't even hit a large town. And they examined the number of calls for service there are every, every year. Calls for service is when people dial 911, 311, saying they need help from the police. They didn't take, and they, they considered, and they basically determined that they got nearly like one and a half calls for service for every citizen every single year. So then they just extrapolated that number and said, okay, if you consider proactive stops, me as a cop, I'm going out, I'm doing a traffic stop. Me as a cop, I'm going to the bad areas in town and I'm doing enforcement. Traffic enforcement, just enforcement, me being a presence in there, and, uh, or stops where someone just walking down the street and I do a consensual stop, they were able to double that number and that's how they were able to determine how many uh, police interactions that the public has every, every single year. Next slide. Once again, uh, further research conducted by the, the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery from in 2018 showed that out of 1,041,000 police contacts, force was used, meaning the police officers had to go hands-on with the suspect for whatever reason, whether it's to handcuff them or actually take them to the ground or even a, a deadly force encounter. Force was used in 0.086% of all those contacts. Let me read that number one more time. Force was used out of over a million contacts, force was used less than 1%, 0.086% of the time, or one in every 1,167 contacts. In a reported 114,000 criminal arrests, force was used in 0.78% of those arrests. Once again, I just want these numbers, I'm repeating these numbers because I know this isn't numbers that you typically hear on, in the mainstream media. Out of over 100,000, 114,000 criminal arrests, force was used in 0.78%, or one in 128 of those arrests. Next slide. Next one. Are they out of control? Are the police out of control? Let's first remember the number of cops. How many cops did I say were here, were in the United States? Very good, very good. Conducting how many contacts? 100 million to 375 million. Okay, uh, so once again, we're gonna look back on 2019, but before we do, I wanna make this point very clear. I am seeking in no way to minimize these deaths when I'm talking about these issues. For those of us who follow Christ, we should always mourn when a fellow image bearer loses their life. Those men and women, and sometimes even children, one, they'll have to stand before a holy God and give an account for their lives. And two, they have family, children, and regardless of their actions, they have friends and family members who will never be the same after these horrific, horrific events. Yet even with that, we must not, we cannot ignore or overlook the reality of the truth when seeking to understand the details of these confrontations. We can mourn with those who mourn while at the same time strive to diligently seek truth. Simply put, 
as a quick example, if you see a video of a questionable police contact, questionable police encounter, you aren't wrong for wanting to know more details. I've been, I've had people jump all over me for saying, I wonder what happened before the video began rolling. I mean, and honestly, think about that. Why is that a not, why is that a, a question that would invoke anger in someone? Isn't that not a good question to ask? If anybody in here was being arrested based off of footage, like a 30 second news clip, you would have every right to say, where's the rest of that footage? Where are the other eyewitnesses? Because it matters, because truth matters. And we don't run from that. We don't run from that. We stand on that. I can't say that enough. We stand on that. But you have a culture now that, 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 wants, you, that wants to make assumptions and they want you to believe a narrative without any data. Do I have to say Jesse Smollett? Do I have to say his name? I mean, is that, where, it, where did that take place? Right here, right? Or wh where was it assumed y'all were led to believe it took place? But how many people were on the news saying, man, I can't believe that guy was a victim of racism. Like, what? They just assumed it to be true. Come out to find out the man made the whole thing up. I mean, we can go on and on how many, I mean, there are real hate crimes out there. Let, let's be real. Is it so bad? That, is it, are things deteriorating so bad we got to make them up now? I think it sells, it pays to be a victim in our society today. A lot of people want to be, want that money. Anyway, let me move on here. Next slide, please. Next. Next slide, please. I love this verse here. A fool, Proverbs 18 and 2 says, A fool takes no delight in understanding, but only in airing his own opinion. Let's keep, that, let's keep some of these texts of Scripture. I got one more coming up, but let's keep those in mind. We should seek to understand. It's biblical. And my desire is that we never take the path of the fool. But let's get back to 2019. As of the time I began doing this research... And this is uh, last year when I put this together. The, the police nationwide, two million cops, hundreds of millions of contacts every year, they shot and killed a total of nine, oh, nearly 1,000 people, 999 people in 2019. Now, at first, you first hear that number, it's like shocking, stunning. But then in light of all the information I gave, I think it should bear a little, like, look, you sh it should be viewed upon just a little bit differently. The ethnic breakdown, 403 white, 250 were black, 162 Hispanic, 143 at the time of reporting, the ethnicity was unknown, and 41 were other. This according to the Washington Post Police Use of Force Database. Oftentimes, the initial response is to assume some level of bias by the police when we see, when we understand that police, uh, black folks only make up 13% of the population, but we, uh, you see there was like a clear large number in comparison to the population we make up. And we should be willing to consider the possibility that there may be some bias on the part of the police officer. Yet should we just stop there and never seek further information? We also have to be willing to understand that there may be some cultural differences within small segments, small segments of various groups. For instance, men make up 50% of the, 50, 50% of the population, but what's the percentage of men in prison that make, 
How many, uh, what's the, uh, as far as the prison population, what's the percentage of male inmates? Anyone? 93%. Men are 50% of, half the population, but we make up an inordinate amount of the prison population. Now, should we just assume sexism is the reason more men are locked up? Y'all, I know y'all hearing me. I see some wheels turning. Just think about it. Should we just assume because men are a, in the minority, like uh, technically, they're probably less than that when it comes down to the population, should we just jump to the conclusion that sexism is why men are more locked up? Or could it be because sometimes we don't know how to act as men? I know I don't know how to act half the time. You can ask my wife in the back of the room. She'll tell you I don't know how to act half the time. Anyway, just things to consider. That's all I'm trying to get y'all to do is just think about things a little bit differently. Next slide. When we further examine the numbers, other studies show that on average, 85% of the people who the police shoot every year were in possession of a weapon. 85% of, of those 999 people that the cops shot in 2019, almost all of them had some form of a weapon. CNN tell you that? I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there. Did LeBron talk about that? When he talked about us being hunted down on the streets? Just think about it, y'all. Think about it. I think we sometimes forget that police work isn't about delivering flowers. These men and women's primary function is to stop crime. And sometimes they have to come face to face with evil. And as someone who's done, who did that uh, career for over 20 years, sometimes it ain't pretty, y'all. Next slide. Next. One more. According to the Washington Post, of those 999 shootings, only 55 were unarmed. Now, we should examine those 55 and see what was going on. Uh, but again, we're not claiming that those 55 could not be, they, that there's no potential for them to be dangerous. 599 had guns, 172 had knives, 64 were in control of a vehicle, 29 had a fake or toy gun, and in, low, and in a low light setting at midnight, when you're running down the street and some, somebody's got a fake gun and they point it at you or they got it in, in your hand, that officer doesn't necessarily have the time to determine whether it's fake or not. He, may have to, he or she may have to make a split-second decision at the risk of their life or someone else's life. Sixty of them had other weapons, clubs, screwdrivers, rocks, bricks, sticks, etc. Next slide. Real quick, 924 out of that number of those from uh, 2019, 924 out of that 999 had a real or fake weapon. Uh, unarmed and dangerous. I want to address this issue real quick. Next slide. Next one. Another important point is the fact that potential threat doesn't disappear for lack of a weapon or the alleged suspect being, un being unarmed. In every police encounter, 
there are potential weapons. In every police encounter, there are potential weapons. And what, what are those weapons? That's it, definitely. But what else? The cop's gun. The cop's baton. The cop's taser. If that suspect gets a hold of them, th those weapon, that, that weapon, it could, it could escalate quickly. Let me share a little bit of uh, extra inf uh, additional information with you. The Census Bureau in 2017 stated that 716 people were killed that year where there was no gun. They were killed with the suspect's bare hands. 716. Punches, kicks, elbows, etc. If you add strangulation and asphyxiation and suffocation, the number of lives, next slide. Oh, you're good right there. The number of lives jumps closer to uh, 1,000. And I've seen some studies that put the number over, this, over that. No weapon around, no weapon in, in sight. The person kills them with their bare, bare hands. Next slide. Next. Are things as bad as they were 20, 50 plus years ago? Hear this claim a lot. We're still living in Jim Crow. Let's examine that a bit. Let's just look at them in more recent years. Uh, black men shot by the police. In 2015, there were 38. 2016, there were 19. 2017, 21. Next slide, please. 2018, 17. 2019, 13. 2020, there were 19. In this short time period, we already see a, a change in numbers. Already see a change in numbers. Again, how many cops are out there making contacts with uh, suspects? How many times? How many contacts are they making? Nearly a half a billion, 375 million. Look at the number compared to how many cops are out there making contacts every single day, every day in, the, in this community, in, in, in this country, every single day. And you're talking about a three, 365 days. You're talking about a whole year. Yes, we examine those numbers. But should we be thinking that 38, I'm going to use the worst number up there, and I'm just asking you to just think about this. Should we think that 38 uh, black men, unarmed black men shot by the police out of 375 million contacts is an epidemic? And if we think that's an epidemic, what do we say about the, t uh, the, the sheer number? I, I mean, wh what is that, a month in Chicago? A week, I mean, honestly, what is that? So if, if that's an epidemic in a whole year with all them cops out there pushing the beat, what should we say about that with what's going on in our communities? Right, where the, where's the big celebrity push to, to address that issue? I'm not saying people in, in, in aren't doing stuff. I know y'all are in an evangelistic church. I know y'all be out there proclaiming the truth of the gospel that, so that God can truly transform these hearts and the violence can be over. But you don't see this big, massive celebrity push to deal with these issues. And you have to wonder, you have to ask yourself why that is. Next slide, please. Wrapping up here in like the next minute or two. According to the, uh, like I said, once again, we, we were talking about how many cops are out there. According to the CD, uh, Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice, an organization that isn't necessarily known as being pro-police, while noting that there is a disparity between the, number, the, the amount of black folks in our country and the number of police killings, 
Even they recognize that the overall rate of police killings of black men has fallen by 70, over 70% over the last 40 to 50 years. They recognize that the number of police killings of blacks has fallen by 70% over the last 40 to 50 years. They also state that even with the black youth and young adult population doubling over the last 40 years, police shootings of young black men 25 and under has fallen by nearly 80% with twice the population. Think about that, y'all. Take, take notes. Do the research. Check these, check these stats and figures that I'm sharing with y'all. Look them up. Look them up for yourself. Don't just assume me. I'm, I'm not going to get, I don't plan on getting up here and lying, lying to y'all, but I double and triple check these. But do your own research. Don't be led down a certain path by people who have a specific agenda, oftentimes a godless one. But we'll leave that alone for right now. The same report noted that police-related deaths from cops have declined by 61% in general over the, since the late 1960s. More decreases. I'm not celebrating these numbers. I think that any death is a tragedy. Yet I ask you to ask yourself once again, does this sound like an epidemic? How often, how often do you hear this kind of information? You have to be willing to ask yourself that question. And if it's rare, ask yourself, why is that the case? And folks, we have only touched the tip of the iceberg. I probably could stand up here for another hour and, and talk about this. But I know y'all got things to do. And I want to your, your, respect your time. I had to cut a ton, amount of, a ton of information out of this presentation just, uh, just to fit into the time frame. The unfortunate reality is that when there is an unfounded mistrust, I'm talking about an unfounded mistrust of the police, there are many possible victims. Primarily, the ones who are suffer the most are the ones who live in the very communities that need police protection the most, unfortunately. When a black man runs or fights, and I'm gonna be specific, or when we refuse to call the police because we assume they don't have our best interests at heart, or that they're excessively dangerous, who suffers the most? I think it's pretty obvious. Once again, y'all, this, this isn't a small issue. My goal today was to give you some things to think about or consider whenever you, wherever you may stand on the issue of dealing with police brutality. Next slide. Keep going. Next. <laughs> One more, I believe. We'll stop right there. One more slide, please. I'm going to leave you all with this. Proverbs 18 and 17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. My hope and prayer is that as we struggle through these complex issues, and they are complex, that above all things, we would be truth seekers first, putting aside personal opinions in order to better determine the facts from the fiction. Thank you. Amen, amen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, this was a 
an awesome presentation. If I can have my altar workers up in the, the worship team, we want to have a time uh, of prayer. Uh, if you need prayer, if you, maybe you came in here, you had an idea of, well, police, they're racist, police, they're, they're wrong. Um, but now you're, you're, your heart is for, for people that maybe they've been misguided or, you know, maybe given wrong information and you want to share this, but you want the ability to share it. Or, you know, your heart has been spurred on to pray for those policemen that are, you know, maybe in these neighborhoods where, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for them to make that, to, to have that contact, whether it be with someone who's armed or unarmed. So if your heart right now is to pray for policemen, pray for neighborhoods that are constantly uh, under, like, the, the supervision of police, maybe neighborhoods that have more police than others, we're going to have a time for prayer of that. And if you want to pray, if you want to pray for boldness, because like, like, the, like the brother said, you know, we need to be able to be evangelistic. We need to go out into these neighborhoods, these communities. It's not the, the police's job to change the hearts of men. It's not a policeman's job to change the minds of these young people. It's actually the gospel. The gospel does that. The spirit of God is the one that changes generations. So what we need to do, if we're not policemen, right, is that we still need to be involved in these places preaching the gospel. So if everyone can please stand up, please, in in an attitude of worship, we're going to pray. And if you want that boldness, listen, we have altar workers here. We We will pray with you. We will walk with you. But see, God uses us to change communities, to change neighborhoods, and he does it with one tool, and that's the gospel. Amen? Everyone bow their heads, close their eyes. Let's, uh, let's all begin to just lift up our neighborhoods, right? Let's begin to lift up the police officers we know right now. Let's begin to lift up people that we may know that are in gangs, the people we see at the street corner that we don't really pay attention to. Maybe we walk by because chances are they're going to have contact with police officers, is that going to be another story that sets the nation uh, uh, ablaze? We got to pray that that stuff doesn't happen. We have to move. We have to be obedient to what God has called us to do. Father, right now we just lift up to you the city of Chicago. Lord, we know, God, we know based off what we see, based off of what we hear, based off of our experience, God, this, this city is broken in need of you, Jesus, in need of salvation. So, Lord, we lift up to you every community, Lord. Lord, right now we are doing a, an outreach, God. And I pray that you would just bless this outreach, Mission 77. That, Lord, as we visit every 77 neighborhood, Lord, every neighborhood, I pray that the gospel of peace, the one that you proclaim, Jesus, to those far off, to those near, I pray that that, God, that would be the change that this nation needs. That would be the change that this city needs. That the young men selling drugs, that the, the older people moving the kids to sell drugs, the kids that have no future, that have no hope, Lord, I pray, Jesus, that you would reach them with your gospel. The Spirit of God, you would transform their lives. Lord, that it wouldn't just be the youth either, God. I pray that their households would be changed. The generational curses would be broken in Jesus' name. I want you guys to lift up your voices. Begin to pray. Begin to intercede. Begin to call on God for his help, for his ever-present help. Lord, we trust you, God. You're the God of this city. You're the God of this nation, Lord. You are the one, the only one that can save us, Lord. On your shoulders rests the government, Lord. You're the sole uh, responsible for peace 
in this nation, Lord. So we call on you to bring peace to this nation. God, we pray for reconciliation between the city and its authorities, Lord. The people of the city, God, and the, and the police officers that govern it, God. We pray for peace, Lord. God, we pray for peace, Lord. Father, we want your heart to be known in this city as well. God, we want your heart to be known in this city as well. That, God, we wouldn't be idle, Lord. God, I rebuke idleness right now in Jesus' name. If there are people that are idle that see the cause, that see the situation, Lord, and they don't pray, they don't move, Lord, I pray that you would wake them up, God. Hallelujah. I'm going to say a prayer of dismissal, but if you want to continue on praying, you can stay here. We have altar workers here that are going to remain. But, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. God, a day where we got so much information, Lord. I pray that we would be able to use this information, that, God, we'd be able to uh, bring the gospel, Lord, to police officers, that they would be full of integrity, Lord. And, God, we pray they would be able to bring the gospel to the people that they're policing. And, Father, we pray that... Even though we, may, have, we, not, we not, may not be police officers, I pray that we would love truth, God. Oh, God, let us be lovers of your truth. Let us spread not false information, but let us, be, let us spread truth. Let us be compassionate with people and their stories, and let us be able to witness to them and meet them where they're at. It's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. Amen.